www.ghatimbaradio.org/events. Thirty-nine degrees in Germantown, forty-one in McLean, and forty-one in Tacoma Park. Hey, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James, reminding you to continue to have a meaningful Women's Month of March. This is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University in HD at 88.5 at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City on your smart speaker and online at WAMU.org at 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight we're going to kick off our celebration of Women's History Month with an array of famous females in old-time radio. Carol Lombard, co-starring with James Stewart and Edward Everett Horton on Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Spring Byington in her series, December Bride, and the tremendously gifted writer, Rebecca West, sharing her credo on this, I believe, and with a dramatization of her virtuosic short story, There Is No Conversation, on the NBC University Theater, plus Gunsmoke, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, and Dragnet. So relax, ignore the cares of last week, don't think about what may bother you in the week to come, and instead... Turn your imagination loose here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. If you were with us last week, you heard a performance by Peter Lorre that was vintage, well, vintage Peter Lorre. I mention it because we're about to hear an impersonation of Mr. Lorre, as we always do whenever the man with the action-packed expense account has occasion to consult his Parisian informant, Le Chat Gris. That's what happens in the Rhymer Collection Matter, the July 31st, 1960 episode of CBS's Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. This is Fred Porter, Johnny, at Mono Guarantee Insurance Company, Philadelphia. Well, how you doing, Fred? Johnny, you remember about a year ago when somebody walked up with the Rhymer collection of miniatures? Miniatures? You know those tiny paintings, portraits usually done on porcelain? Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. But I don't think I ever heard of any Rhymer collection. A half a dozen of them stolen from the Rhymer galleries in Philadelphia. Cost us something over $20,000 insurance. Never found them, huh? Well, here's the thing. I just got a phone call from Wilbert Reimer. He wants to see you just as quickly as possible. About those miniatures? He wouldn't say, Johnny, but I'll bet on it. And he insisted that you and only you be brought in. Huh. Funny, since I had nothing whatsoever to do with the case. Well, why not, with your reputation? But I thought you usually had a staff man Plus in secure. the fact that our company investigator at that time was Jerry Pitcher. Jerry Pitcher? Yep. The one who was suspected of complicity in some of the cases he was supposed to be investigating? That's the one. Well, wasn't he suspect in that robbery? Yeah, but neither we nor the police could ever pin anything on him. Hmm. All we could do was fire him and warn the other insurance companies to look out for him. Fred. Yeah? Any idea where Jerry Pitcher's operating now? Not the least. After the Rhymer episode, he simply disappeared. 
There was talk of his having skipped the country, but nobody was sure of it. Hmm. I wonder if Limer suddenly got a lead on him. There's one way to find out. Okay, Freddy, I'll grab the first train. CBS Radio brings you Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, Act One of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar of the Mono Guarantee Insurance Company, Philadelphia office. The following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Reimer collection matter. Expense account item one, eight twenty-five train fare and incidentals, Hartford to Philadelphia, PA. Item two, seventy cents for a taxi to the Reimer Galleries over on Walnut Street. Mr. Reimer turned out to be short, slightly gray, and very, very British. Uh, let's go into my office, Mr. Dollar, where we can talk and discuss. Yeah, sure, Mr. Reimer. Well, the art business must be pretty good with a crowd like this in the store. Pardon me, miss. In here, please. Hey, thanks. Well, the gallery is rather well patronized this morning, isn't it? Let me sit down, please. Thank you. I must say, Mr. Dollar, that I many times wished that you had been assigned to the case when these priceless miniatures that I brought to me from Europe were stolen a year ago. Oh, how so? Well, they were so vastly uninsured, sir. A man of your capabilities would have been able to find them for me. Yeah, maybe. You, instead of that, that Jerry Pitcher. I understand that, although nobody could prove anything, you suspected him of somehow being involved in that loss. Oh, yes. If only because of his failure to investigate it properly. But now look here, son. This, uh, this check has a direct relationship with the unusual number of people visiting the gallery this morning. Uh-huh. This check was made out by you? Yes. I intend to put it in the mails before the day is over. To the Mono Guarantee Insurance Company. $4,050? The exact amount I received for the loss of one of the miniatures, a genuine Pellegrini. But you collected something like 20000 in all. On the 6th it was stolen, yes. But now, suddenly, and most mysteriously, the Pellegrini has been returned to me. What? And, of course, the people out there in the gallery, most of them connoisseurs, would be interested in seeing it again, wouldn't they? Yeah, I should think so. As a matter of fact, I've already found a buyer for it. Who? Uh, Mr. Charles Cunningham, one of my regular clients. Well, just how did you happen to get this one back? Two days ago, when I opened the... I, I found it lying inside the door on the floor under the letter slot for the morning mail. Just lying there? But it was wrapped in a bit of coarse wrapping paper, the sort of greengrocer might use, and it was tied up with a piece of dirty string. No note or anything with it? Nothing. They're very mysterious. But why was it returned? Who knows? Would you call it a pretty well-known piece, one that might easily be recognized? Oh, definitely. And, and, of course, there were pictures of it in the papers and of the others at the time that they were stolen. In other words, anybody having it stood a pretty good chance of being caught if he tried to sell it. Well, that does seem to be a logical conclusion, doesn't it? Yet there's always the black market. I mean, abroad, in Paris, 
A lot of fine art that was stolen during the war has suddenly shown up over there. Yes, and I understand that otherwise perfectly honest collectors hadn't hesitated to purchase it. Uh, things taken from the Louvre, from various museums in Germany, and... Hello, but Mr. Dollar, if the thief were caught smuggling the miniatures out of this country... Yeah, I know what you mean. But now, why return these to you? There are one of them, Mr. Dollar. Okay, one of them, but why? Well, there is, of course, one possibility. Yeah? Like what? Well, if the thief himself were a connoisseur, one who would fully appreciate the value of the miniatures, well, I'm certain that he would never bring himself to simply destroy them. That is, after realizing that he couldn't very well dispose of them without being caught. So rather than destroy them, he decided to give up and return them to you? Well, it is a possibility, isn't it? But he returned only one of them. And, of course, this theory of yours rules out Jerry Pitcher. Well, yes. But it's puzzling, isn't it? Ah. Wait now, the paper and the string you found wrapped around it. What? Where are they? I'd like to see them. Well? Oh, how utterly stupid of me. What do you mean? I... I'm afraid I threw them out of the trash, Mr. Dollar. It was taken away yesterday. Oh, great. You might have found fingerprints on them, mightn't you? Yeah, and they might have given us a lead on whoever sold those things in the first place. I'm terribly sorry. It was terribly stupid of me. My reason for sending them for you was hope that by finding who returned this one, you might find the rest of them. Sure. In which case, your insurance company, well, needless to say, I would gladly return all of the money they paid to me. Make them pretty happy, wouldn't it? But now... Yeah, they might even feel like handing me a nice big fat commission. Now I destroyed one possible clue. Well, there must be others, if I can dig them up. Oh, I hope so, Mr. Dollar. Or, of course, we, uh, we could just sit here and wait for the other five to be returned to you. I presume you're jesting, sir. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so. Yes. So how will you proceed? Well, I'll tell you something, Mr. Reimer. Yes? Yes, Mr. Dollar? I haven't the least idea. And now, Act Two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Rhymer Collection Matter. Expense account item two, sixty cents for a cab to Fred Porter's office of Mono Guarantee Insurance. And it was about the stolen miniatures that Mr. Reimer sent for you. And it was, Freddie. Over $20,000 worth, Johnny. Well, is he some idea now about who might have taken them? Fred, one of them, a Pellegrini, has just been returned to him. What? Yeah. Reimer's sending you a check in the amount your company paid him for that particular one. Well, who returned it to him? I don't know. He doesn't know. It was simply pushed through the letter slot in the door of the gallery. No clues, no nothing. Johnny, whoever returned it must have been a thief. Or someone who knows the thief has contact with him. So if you can find this person, whoever brought it back, we may be able to recover the other miniature. Yeah. Did the police really do a job when they were stolen a year ago? Yes, and the only suspect was that so-called investigator we'd mistakenly assigned to Reimer because he seemed to know something about art. He was familiar with Reimer's place. I was Jerry Pitcher. That's right. But they couldn't prove a thing against him. And after all, it was only Reimer's theory that Jerry might have been mixed up in it. Why? I don't know. It may have been because of the sloppy way he handled his end of the investigation. And don't forget, it was about that time we learned that Pitch's reputation wasn't all that it might have been. Have you got any idea where Jerry might be now? As I told you over the phone, Johnny, there was talk that he'd skip the country. Reason in itself to be suspicious of him, if you ask me. 
I'll tell you this, Fred. If he did skip, and if he had those miniatures with him, the one place he might have gone to... Listen, mind if I use your phone? I'll drive beside you. Help yourself. Okay, thanks. Hello, operator. I want to put through a call to Paris, France. Paris? Johnny... Just take it easy, Freddy, and stay close to this phone so that you can hear. My call was to a strange little character whose name is de Marsac, but who calls himself a Chagri, the gray cat. His knowledge of the Paris underworld and everything that goes on in it is nothing short of fabulous. Yeah, because he himself is very much a part of it, of what goes on there. Not a single important work of art could ever hit the black market without his knowing about it. How? How really, Monsieur Darling? This is your oldest, your dearest friend, Le Chagrin. Oldest and dearest friend, huh? But of course. Oh, sure. Now listen to Marsac. I want some information. Maybe you can give it to me. Mm, for a small fee, perhaps? Mm, perhaps. See, uh, a thousand dollar American? A thousand? You're out of your mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, 500? Uh, maybe a couple of hundred, if it's worth anything. Now, take it easy, Johnny. Let me handle this. Now, listen to my sack here. Well, speak, monsieur. Well, I'm looking for a man named Jerry Pitcher. Ever see or hear of him? Jerry Pitcher? Oh, no, 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 monsieur. You're sure? Yes, I'm sure. Then what about the Rhymer collection of miniatures? Oh, my. Yeah, there's some tiny paintings on porcelain. Yeah, but of course. They were here on the black market. You get that? I sure did. Go on, Johnny. Monsieur? When, de Marsac? When did you see them? Well, it is important. You kidding? Of course it is. Then, then you will pay me uh, 400, perhaps? <laughs> 200. Now, when? Huh. Oh, Mish. Well, three years ago. Three years ago? We, we when they purchased for the gallery there in the United States. Oh, well, that's a lot of help. But who, who brought them for the Reimer Gallery? Who purchased them? Do you know? Well? Uh-huh. So that is the question. That's right. Well, in, in 300, perhaps? Oh, oh it's worth it, monsieur. Okay, 250. Now, tell me who. Well, it was monsieur Reimer himself. What? Reimer himself bought them there in the black market? Oui, monsieur. Ah, I see. Well, so perhaps it is really worth 400? No, on second thought, Demarsac, I'm afraid it doesn't mean a thing. I'll mail you a check. Well, of course, the last time I saw... The... What? What's that? Well? Okay, 400. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was six months ago, June. In June? Oui, June. I had the shop of my very dear friend. Oh, that scoundrel, that terrible crook, Francois Dubesson. Defense. But not for long. What do you mean? Because he could not sell them. They were what you call uh, too hot. Huh? Because they were known to have been so recently stolen from the gallery there in America. Too hot, huh? So whoever him brought them back here. Excuse me, monsieur. All right, Demarsac. Uh, who was that fence that Dubosan, uh, who was he trying to sell them for? This man, Pitcher? Oh, no, no, monsieur. I told you I never heard of him. Well, who then? Well, alas, I do not know. And with a clever man like Dubosan, well, well, perhaps for you, my oldest, my dearest friend, and it might take some time and expense. Then no bother yet. Well, monsieur... Forget it. I'll send you a check. 
Only you can send it to him, Fred. Save putting it on my expense account. Oh, wait a minute, Johnny. If he can find out who was trying to peddle the miniatures over oh, there... Oh, you underestimate Le Chagris. What? If he's seen them, he knows what they're worth. So what? By the time he got that information, you'd have to pay him a thousand, maybe two. Well, even so, Johnny, if it leads us to the thief and the other miniatures that were stolen... Leads us to him or merely tells us who he is. What's the difference? And I thought you were convinced of Sherry Pitcher. Well, who else? Why? I don't know. Ask the police. Ask Reimer. Maybe I will. Or maybe I got a better idea. Item four, a dollar fifty for a taxi out to the Museum of Art, where I finally ran down one of the curators, a man by the name of Kingman. Well, of course I know the Rhymer miniatures, Mr. Dollar. Priceless. And such a shame that they've been lost to the world of art. Stolen. Yeah. Uh. Stolen by a fool. Well, how do you mean, sir? Well, I mean the thief would never dare to try to sell them. But such well-known pieces, anyone anywhere would recognize them, would see that he was brought to justice. Maybe. How much would you say those six little paintings are worth? About? Two or three years ago, not very much. But now that their history is known, well, this often happens with works of art, Mr. Dollar. How much, Mr. Kingman? Well, somewhere, I would say, that is, if they're ever found. Yes? Somewhere in the neighborhood of $200,000. You're serious? Well, among them is a body, for instance, and a genuine Pellegrini, yes. A Pellegrini? Pellegrini the Elder. And one of our wealthy collectors, Mr. Charles Cunningham, would pay Cunningham. almost... Listen, do you know where I can find him? I believe I have his address and phone number in my office. Good, come on. But to why all this interest, Mr. Dollar? I'll tell you about it on the way to your office, Mr. Kingman. Item five, ten cents for a phone call, only to learn that Mr. Charles Cunningham was out of town for the day. So item six, fourteen dollars even, is for a dinner, a room, and some breakfast at the Bellevue Stratford. Then early the next morning, item seven, another dime for another phone call. Insurance investigator, did you say? That's right, Mr. Cunningham. Well, what can I do for you, Mr. Dollar? Just answer one question, please. How much are you paying the Rhymer Galleries for a Pellegrini miniature? You mean the one that was stolen a year ago that has been recently recovered? That's the one I mean. What's the price? Oh. <laughs> well, now, I... I'm afraid that's something How much, I... sir? It was a private sale, Mr. Dollar. A confidential transaction, then. Well? Well? I don't know whether you realize it or not, but only recently has the value of those miniatures become... Yeah, I know all about that. How much, Mr. Cunningham? Now, look... Uh, would you rather be hauled in as accessory to a fraud? You, you mean the Pellegrini isn't genuine? Oh, it probably is. But you said I might be involved in a fraud. How much? I am giving Reimer 20500 for it. Maybe you'd better call your bank and have them stop the check. Stop Thank you, Mr. Cunningham. It looks as though my hunch was right. What? Goodbye, sir. <laughs> Item eight, a buck for a taxi to Fred Porter's office. Item nine, another buck for a cab for the two of us to the Rhymer Galleries. Will you please tell me what this is all about, Johnny? Have you got on the trail of Jerry Pitcher? No, Freddie, I haven't even bothered trying. Hey, listen, do you handle all of Rhymer's insurance? I, I wonder his premiums do. Well, as a matter of fact, a rather large one, slightly overdue now. Oh. Why didn't you tell me that? What difference does it make? Well, if business were good for a man like that, wouldn't he keep up his insurance payments? wonder how much else he owes. What are you getting at? Plenty. Looks like we've arrived, though. You know, you still haven't told me why we've come here to the gallery at the crack of dawn. Yeah, buddy. Now, keep the chance. Yeah, yeah. 
I see Mr. Reimer's already opened shop. Johnny? Come on, Fred. Well, Mr. Reimer. Oh, Mr. Dollar, I am indeed glad to see you. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, good morning, Mr. Porter. Mr. Reimer? Look here, Mr. Dollar, here on this table. What? Another of the miniatures, a Lombardi. What? Yes, lying on the floor under the mail slot, just like the other that was returned. I can't believe it. Yeah, let me see. No, no, not such a... And you see, Mr. Dollar, this time, I saved the string and wrapper for you. Oh? Why? Fingerprints? Yes, of course. Only I doubt if we'll find any. But you were most explicit. Matter of fact, if you didn't wear gloves in wrapping it up, you were pretty stupid. I beg your pardon. Ask that I be dragged in so that nobody would suspect you, huh? Suspect me? Johnny, what of Jerry Pitcher? Who knows what Jerry is, and who cares? Mr. Reimer, when was your last trip to Europe? In June, wasn't it? I make many trips to Europe in order In to... June? Well, yes, yes, it was, but, but now look here. Let's go back to your office. I want to look at your bank statements for the past year. Mr. Dollar. Or would you rather I just call in the cops? I don't know what you're talking about. Real honest business you've been running, huh? Of course. But you didn't hesitate to buy stolen, smuggled artworks on the Paris black market. Now, look here, sir. I suppose I should have started thinking when you told me those miniatures were considerably underinsured. What? Yeah, because you insured them before their true value really became known. But by the time you did know it, you'd already pulled the fake robbery, collected the insurance on them to keep your business going. Well, I've had a piece. You tried to sell them in Paris then, but they were too hot. That was in June. But you still needed money, didn't you? But have I denied So you had to bring them back. After all, you'd only collected about 20000 on them. And now you could sell them for 200000 at least. Is this true? Ah, pretty nice profit. Even after you got through returning what you'd collected from the insurance company. Mr. Reimer, and how to get them back... Have them mysteriously reappear one at a time. And give out that cock and bull story about the thief not daring to sell them without being caught. Well, Mr. Reimer. Well, uh, do you think, uh, if I produce the others, if I, if I write and sign a full confession, the authorities will be more gentle with me? Why do they do it? Won't they ever learn? What's the matter with people, anyhow? Some people, that is. Oh, well, expense account total, including the trip back to Hartford, thirty-five fifty. And, Freddie, don't forget, a nice fee on this one, as well as a check to Le Chagri over there in Paris. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were Harry Bartell, Ben Wright, Horace Lewis, Junius Matthews, and Marvin Miller. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Dan Coverly speaking. Johnny Dollar has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. 
The Rhymer Collection Matter, an episode of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, from the summer of 1960 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. This month is Women's History Month, and this year marks the 50th anniversary of the passing of one of the biggest female stars of early television, Spring Byington. She'd already had a distinguished and very long career in the theater, on film, including an Oscar nomination for You Can't Take It With You, and on radio, when her situation comedy, December Bride, appeared on TV in 1954. As I say, it was a hit, and it ran for five seasons, a far greater success than it had enjoyed on radio, where December Bride had only lasted a little over a year. December Bride was a kind of antidote to the mother-in-law jokes that were a staple of 20th century American comedy. Ms. Byington's character of the widowed Lily Ruskin was a beloved member of her daughter's Henshaw household. Mr. Henshaw was played on radio by Hal March, who went on to fame and some notoriety as the host of TV's The $64,000 Question. We're about to hear the very last show of the radio series, which mentions S&H Green Stamps, a kind of early customer rewards program of retail outlets, and the red flying horse trademark of mobile oil gas stations. The program was broadcast on May 27, 1953, a little more than a year before the TV series began. It came from CBS, and it concluded the radio run of December Bride. And now, December Bride. The story of a guy who likes his mother-in-law, created and transcribed by Park Levy, featuring Hal March and Doris Singleton. And starring that beloved lady of the screen, Spring Byington. And here's the mother-in-law the guy likes. And, children, you should have been at the lecture last night. Oh, wait, wait just a minute, Lily. You went to another lecture last night? Yes. Well, how many is that you've been to this week? Four. Oh, Mother, isn't that overdoing it? No, I really don't have too much to do in the evening. And after I walk around shopping all day, well, can a girl sit down, take off her shoes, and improve her mind at the same time? Lily, <laughs> most of the subjects you listen to are so impractical. Well, uh, at the lecture last night, the one I attended, I heard the most provocative opening statement that I'd heard all year. What was that, Mother? Why, the lecturer said that any person in this day and age who thinks he's normal should see a psychiatrist. <laughs> Oh, really? What does this man do for a living? Oh, he's a psychiatrist. <laughs> well, there's nothing like opening your speech with a commercial. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, he's retired. But in his approach to the family problem, Dr. Klipmeyer... Dr. Klipmeyer? Yes, he was one of the most famous psychiatrists in Vienna years ago. I've never heard of him. Well, he must have been very important because he told us Modestly, of course, that at the height of his practice, he had five couches going simultaneously. Five couches? And a Morris chair for borderline cases. <laughs> well, anyway, the doctor said it. I'll get it. I think it's Hilda. Good morning, Lily. Well, good morning, Hilda. You're just in time for breakfast. 
Well, I've already eaten, but in Dr. Klipmeyer's language, my alter ego could stand a second helping. <laughs> oh, yeah, Ruth. My, Hi, Hilda. Uh, oh, Hilda, listen, keep uh, mother company while Matt drives me over to the pet shop, huh? Oh, uh, Ruth, I tell you, there's nothing wrong with that goldfish. Matt, <laughs> look at him. Poor Oscar, he can barely move. His eyes are half closed and he's gasping for air. Honey, you sent me off to work many a day in worse condition and thought nothing of it. <laughs> Darling, it will only take a few minutes. Oh, all right. Come on, Oscar, you want it in surgery. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Do you want another egg, Hilda? No, I just finished these flapjacks. Hilda, you finished the flapjacks? That's a plate you're trying to cut. <laughs> Maybe it's just like Dr. Clipmeyer says. My subconscious sublimates the desire of the conscious. Wasn't he a fascinating speaker? Brilliant. Especially his dissertation on the relation between children and their in-laws. Oh, that's so important to keep in mind. I'll never forget his wonderful analysis of the tension symptoms. Tension symptoms? Mm-hmm. Uh, I must have slept through that part. <laughs> Oh, Bill Ray was so interesting. He explained that in many cases where an in-law lives with either her son or daughter, yes. there comes a time when a tension develops. And the first indication of this condition is an innocent suggestion by the children that the in-law take a trip of some kind. Come to think of it, that's so true. When I lived with my son-in-law, a tension must have arisen because he continually suggested that I take a trip. <laughs> Any specific place? No, he just kept saying, get lost. <laughs> oh, but you're so lucky, Lily. Ruth adores you, and Nat is crazy about you. You'll never have to face that problem. I know, and every day I count my blessings. When I came here a year ago... Well, didn't I tell you there was nothing wrong with Oscar? Of all things. Will you please tell your friend Pete when he comes over and can't finish his scotch and soda to throw it in the sink and not in the fishbowl? <laughs> How was I to know the poor thing was hung over? Well, I only saw Pete do it once. I guess I should have gotten suspicious when I saw Oscar throw gravel at the cat. <laughs> Very funny. Oh. We've had that fish ever since we were married, and I think it's very inconsiderate of Pete. All right, all right, honey. I'll talk to him. Do you worry about such trifles when there are other things much more important? Such as? Lily. What about Mother? Well, all those stupid lectures she goes to, honey. Can't, can't you see she's bored? I'd like to do something for her. I would give her a lift. You know, a, a surprise of some kind. Oh, really, Matt? I don't think that Mother... Wait a minute. Ruth, I've got it. Why don't we change your surroundings? You know, redecorate a room? Oh, but honey, that would be expensive. Oh, forget it. After all, she does spend a lot of time up there, and it would let her know how welcome she was. We could do it in a couple of days and surprise her. Surprise her? Sure. Oh, th then you don't want her here while we're doing it. Oh, no, no. That would take away all the fun. And besides, she would be inconvenient. Mm -hmm. I've got a great idea. We can suggest that she takes a trip. <laughs> a wonderful breakfast, Lily. What time is it? Twelve, Katie. Oh, my goodness, I missed lunch. <laughs> oh, well, I guess we have to make some sacrifices when we're dieting. <laughs> Lily,
get this Dr. Klipmeyer's book. You can get the book at Walby's. And don't forget to read that chapter on the tension symptoms. I think it's called, Do Your Children Love You or Have They Asked You to Take a Trip? <laughs> Mother! In here, dear. We're just getting up from the breakfast table. How's Oscar? Oh, he's fine. He's taking the pledge. <laughs> Lily. Yes, Matt? Ruth and I were just thinking, how would you like to take a trip? <laughs> what? 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 You know, get away for a couple of days. Do your world of good. Take a trip. But, uh, well, do you really want me to go? Oh, we insist. Oh, dear. Mother, what's the matter? Oh, nothing, dear. Nothing at all. Gilda, come up to my room. I want to talk to you. Ah! <laughs> well, look at that, Ruth. We've made her so happy she's all broken up. <laughs> But it's all so ironical. Last night I was warned and today it's happened. It's so hard to believe. And it's their way of telling me they don't want me around. I'm going to do the only thing. I'm going back to Philadelphia. You do no such thing, Lily. This is a crisis. And we must face it calmly. Maybe we can figure out something. Well, let's go for a drive. It will help clear your mind. And maybe you'll feel better if you knock over a few objects. Hilda, I've made up my mind. I'm going back to the house and tell the children that I'm returning to Philadelphia. Oh, but Lily, you promised you'd stay here at my apartment for a couple of days to think things over. Oh, what's the use? My children don't want me. It's as simple as that. But Lily, please. No, Hilda. You bought Dr. Kipmeyer's book. He says at the first sign of tension, the wise mother-in-law will make a clean break. Oh, Hogwarts. What does he know? Has he ever been a mother-in-law? <laughs> Hilda, I've made up my mind. When I get to the house, I'm going to rush up to my room, throw all of my things in a bag, and leave. Aren't you going to leave any message? I don't think it's necessary. Well, I'd like you to write one little note. That if any gentleman call you up, have Ruth give them my number. <laughs> Goodness sakes, Lily, what's your hurry? Oh, I'm sorry, Hilda. I'm so upset I didn't realize it. Was I going fast? Fast? When you passed that last gas station, the flying red horse turned white. Lily, <laughs> won't you reconsider? Well, what is there to reconsider? I'm sure the children didn't mean it that way. Well, I'm, I'm willing to find out. I'll have a talk with them, and we'll see. Now, let's go in smiling and happy, like we don't suspect anything. All right. Oh, Hilda, I've been so happy here all year. I, I just pray that I've misjudged them. Matt! Ruth! Lily, wouldn't you rather be alone with them? Well, perhaps. You can wait. Ruth! Matt! That's funny, Hilda. They're not home. Hilda, look at that. My suitcases are on the stairway. 
Yes, and they look like they're already packed. <laughs> and look, my room is empty. Oh, Hilda, I've been dispossessed. <laughs> yes, and in such a cruel fashion. At least when my son-in-law threw me out, he gave me cab fare. <laughs> Come on, Hilda. Let's get out of here. Oh, my goodness. What's wrong? Well, look at this card on the floor. Louis de la Fonde. How do you like that? They've already rented my room. Everything's fine. Lily's at her friend Hilda's house for a couple of days. We haven't been in touch with her because we didn't want her to get suspicious about the fact that we're redecorating her room. Ruth! Yes, dear. You know that stuff we took out of your mother's room and put in the garage? Mm -hmm. A Louis the Fourteenth four-poster bed, an English Queen Anne wingback chair, some early American chintz curtains, an Italian Renaissance whatnot, and a Persian rug. How'd you ever collect such a mixed-up selection of stuff? Mother can never go to an auction without recognizing a friend and waving her arm. Oh. <laughs> You'd be surprised what she ends up buying. Yeah. But her room had no motif. You know, it, it looked like the... Like the United Nations it met there, and each delegate left a souvenir. Well, we won't let Monsieur de Lepont see a single thing so he can judge what sort of surroundings Mother should have. Well, that's it. Oh, I'll get it. All right. Hello? Ruth, this is Hilda. Oh, hi, Hilda. Taking good care of Mother? Better care than some people I know. What are you talking about? Look, Ruth, you can speak frankly because your mother can't hear us. She's in the bedroom weeping. Weeping? Why? What happened? As if you didn't know. As soon as she left the house, you evict her. Evict her? Are you crazy? Ruth, we came back and saw all the furniture gone and all her suitcases packed. You and that ought to be ashamed of yourself. Why, the body's still warm. <laughs> oh, for goodness sake, Hilda, we're redecorating Mother's room to surprise her. Your what? <sighs> Well, that's why we suggested she take a trip. Then you're... That's why... Boy, did we make a boo-boo. <laughs> <laughs> do you mean that Mother actually thinks a thing like that? She not only thinks that she's going back to Philadelphia. Philadelphia? Oh, that's terrible. I know. I've been there, too. <laughs> Look, Hilda, you just can't let her go back. Her room will be finished tomorrow night. If if only there was some way you could smooth things over without giving away our secret. Don't worry, Ruth. Leave it to me. Well, all right, Hilda, but whatever you do, be subtle. Got it? Oh, I'll be subtle. I'll lock her in the room. <laughs> oh, no, that won't do it. Oh, oh, uh, uh. Here she comes now. i got to hang up. Hilda, I'm going to the airport. Would you mind driving me? All right, Lily. Oh, I guess it's best that you're not around for the next two days. What are you talking about? That, that was my doctor on the phone. The test just came back. The test? What test? I had a complete physical examination last week. What day, Hilda? No day, last week. <laughs> physical, they got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> and I've got... Oh, well. Why talk about it now? What? 
Is, is it serious, dear? Well, the doctor just put it this way. Hilda, he said, don't buy any long playing records. <laughs> You get right into bed. I'm not leaving. Oh, bless you, dear. Ooh, help me on to the bed and you sit where I can see you. All right, dear. There, now, don't worry. I'll be right here at your side. Lily, uh, open that drawer and get out what's in it. Very well. This one with the aspirin and the bicarbonate? Oh, no, 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 no. The, the one below it. With the box of fudge and the canasta there. <laughs> what? But, Hilda, you're ill. Oh, yes, I know I'm fading fast, dear. But that's how I want to go. Playing and eating. <laughs> Hilda, are you sure this is serious? Oh, the doctor tried to spare me. But I know it must be very serious. Why? When I left, he took my hand. And there was a tear in his eyes, he said. Hilda, I don't want to alarm you. I'm sure everything will be all right. But just to be on the safe side, would you mind paying your bill before you leave me? <laughs> Honey, that's awful, Lily, thinking we're trying to get rid of her. Oh, don't worry, Matt. I'm sure Hilda will find a way to keep her in town. And once she sees her new room... Oh, that must be the decorator now. I'll get it there. Okay. Bonjour, chérie. Permit me. I am Louis. <laughs> Come in, monsieur. Uh, this is my husband. Ah, la decorator. <laughs> Please to meet food. Merci. Uh, you speak French? Yeah, but I never use it. Why not? I learned it in the army. I understand perfectly. Now, where's the room you wish to transform into a thing of beauty? Oh, it's upstairs, Monsieur de la France. Um, follow me, please. Of course. Uh, Monsieur Louis, do you think you can get this job done by tomorrow night? Certainement, monsieur, it is nothing. Remember, in France, I was the only decorator who was decorated for decorating. Oh. Well, here's the room, monsieur. Hmm, very nice. It has possibilities. Before I start, uh, monsieur, I must know something about your mother-in-law's personality. I must picture her in my mind. Uh, tell me about her taste. For example, what kind of hat does she like to wear? Uh, does she prefer flowers in her hat or feathers? Feathers. Good. She is for the bird. <laughs> I think I have the perfect picture of your mother. She is a woman of rare taste. I would say her favorite color is... Red. Green. Yellow. <laughs> Just as I thought. She is mad for plaid. <laughs> now, it's for the furniture itself. Do you suppose she would like early Chippendales? Early Sheraton or early Heppelwhite? What have you got in early wholesale? Uh, and look, uh, Monsieur de la Fonte, we'll leave the whole thing up to you. You know your business, and we know you'll do a good job for us. Do not concern yourself, madame. 
I will bring out precisely the sort of thing I think your mother should have. Leave your worries on the shelf. Fine. And while you are doing that, you'll find my bill right next to your worry. <laughs> Fine. Hmm. Now, who can that be? Excuse me, ma'am. Where do you think she went? Where can we find her? I think she's headed for the airport. That's south. So with her sense of direction, I advise you to look northwest and east. <laughs> All right, Hilda, thank you. We'll, we'll take the finder. Bye. Now, I'll grab a cab and try to head her off to the airport. Yeah. You take the car and try to trace her. Can I be of assistance? No, thanks. You just keep working. Well, this is a surprise for my mother-in-law, and it's more important than ever that we get this job finished. Come on, honey, let's go. Young man. Yes, madam. Would you mind telling me how to get to the airport? You go up here to Wiltshire, take a right on Westwood Boulevard. At Santa Monica Boulevard, take a right to Sepulveda, then take a left to Sentry Boulevard, then a right, and you're there. Uh, thank you. Hey, just a minute, lady. Don't you think you ought to write it down? This is the fourth time I've given you the same direction. <laughs> How come you keep winding up back here? Well, um, half the way there I forget and I have to come all the way back. Well, I get off in an hour. The guy who takes my place will be named Willis. Thank you, Richard. You're very pleasant. And, uh, well, I guess it's silly to ask. But... Oh, no. What is it, lady? Am I entitled to any green stamps for this? Didn't you? No. Flight number 51, North American Airlines, leaving for Philadelphia, gate three. All aboard, please. Well, did, did you look on the plane? Maybe she got past you. No, I never thought of oh, that. Look out, I can just make it. Hold that plane! Oh, be careful, Matt. Ruth, where's Matt going? To Philadelphia. Mother! You're <laughs> here. Oh, Matt! 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 I wish I'd known he was going to Philadelphia. I have two letters in my purse, and he could have mailed them for me. <laughs> oh, Matt, I'm so sorry I inconvenienced you. There's no trouble. I got off the plane at Albuquerque. <laughs> Ruth, have you shown Lily the surprise? No, and I had quite a problem in keeping it from her. Louis, you may unlock the room now. I'm as anxious to see it as Mother. <laughs> right this way, madame. I open the door. Oh, my goodness. What? What is it, Mother? My room. I think it captures your mood. A little casual, but from the description your children gave me, I thought it would fit you perfectly. 
and Louis the Fourteenth four-poster bed, an English Queen Anne wing-back chair, <laughs> early American chintz curtains, Italian Renaissance whatnot, and a Belgian rug to complete the picture. What do you think, madame? What do I think? Dear, I think it's lovely. Thank you. I'd like to take a moment to tell you that it's our last broadcast of December Bride for the time being. We hope to be back with you soon. It's been great fun for all of us with these stories of the lovable mother-in-law. And I wanted particularly to thank the hundreds and hundreds of you who have been writing to tell us how much you enjoyed the show. So until we're back with you again, this is Spring Binding saying thank you so much. With Paul Dubon, Peter Leeds, Stanley Adams, and Tim Graham. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Gee, I loved that show on television when I was growing up. Spring Byington in December Bride, the last installment of the radio version broadcast in the spring of 1953. We'll hear more from Ms. Byington later tonight as part of the comic relief in a melodrama starring Carol Lombard and James Stewart. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Women were such a big part of the golden age of radio, not least because they absolutely dominated daytime listening beginning in the 1930s, and dominating women's programming were the soap operas. Unlike the few daytime soaps left on TV today, the radio soap operas, at their best, offered an engagement with the concerns and problems of everyday life. These serial dramas regularly dealt with the difficulties women were likely to encounter and think about, always in the context of their social and economic position. And they were immensely popular and omnipresent. According to one scholar, by the spring of 1941, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 6 p.m., you could count on hearing a woman's serial for all but 15 minutes of that eight-hour broadcast day. Along with the domestic drama came domestic concerns, like cooking and housekeeping, Hence, the ubiquitous detergent ads that gave the soap opera genre its name. We're going to hear part of a non-soap soap opera now, a show that sort of cleverly combined domestic drama with recipes and kitchen tips. It was called the Mary Lee Taylor Program, Mary Lee Taylor actually being one Irma Pretz, an advertising executive who billed herself as a nutritionist and home economist for the program's sponsor, pet evaporated milk. Every Saturday morning from 1933 to 1954 on CBS and later NBC, she offered a story of the week and a recipe of the week. Here's a little excerpt of the show from June 11th, 1949. And if you really want the recipe, get ready with a pencil and paper 
but we'll post it on our Facebook page, too. From Chicago station WMAQ and NBC, it's the Mary Lee Taylor Program. And now, back to our story. And Ralph! Well, well, this is a surprise. Come on in. Ralph and I just dropped by for a minute to, uh, to, uh, to see Betsy. Oh, that's awfully sweet of you, Nikki. She's asleep right now, but as soon as she wakes up. Say, Ralph, you may be just the fella to settle an argument. Yes? Now, you're level-headed and intelligent. Well, that's, uh... (laughs) Uh, just what was it? Well, Sally here has gone and gotten a cockeyed idea. She wants to get a job and go to work. Sally? Go to work? Yes. Ralph, I've just been trying to convince Jim. It would be just that much more money coming in every week. Clear profit. Oh, but Sally, I... Only Jim's added up a lot of stuff on paper about how much it would cost me to work. Yeah, things like extra clothes and car fare and lunch money and a cleaning woman two or three times a week. Well, it seems to me if a woman were a good manager... What Jim's really trying to say is, Ralph... He doesn't like the idea of taking over half the housework. Taking over half the... Because, of course, if, if I were working and bringing home a paycheck just like he does... Well, you're darn right I don't like the idea. Carting my shirts to the laundry, going to the grocery store at night, not getting my socks darned. But, Ralph, wouldn't you be willing to put up with doing a little housework? As I told Jim, it would be just like it was before we married. Well, yes, I I see what you mean, but, uh, uh, well, don't you think uh, the man is the natural wage earner in the family, Sally? And uh, when a man puts in a hard day at the office, he naturally likes to come home to a a well-ordered home. A woman by nature is uh, meant to uh, uh, keep the home fires burning and... Oh, then you don't believe in wives working either. Uh Uh-huh. Thanks a lot, Ralph. I knew you could convince Sally. Oh, Oh, my, yes. Ralph is awfully smart about things like that. Not at all, my dear. It's just a matter of being uh, practical. And now we'd better get started for that concert. Might as well be on time and get our money's worth, I always say. Bye, folks. Good night. Glad to drop by. (sighs) I hope this straightening out business is permanent this time. I'm getting darn tired of pulling Nikki's romance off the rocks. You did an awfully good job, Jim. You made Ralph think those ideas were all his. Everything I said is true, that's why. Of course, but we weren't exactly truthful about all that silly business about my going to work. Say, I wonder how much I could earn. Wait a minute. We'll be bringing you another Jim and Sally Carter story next week. And now come along to the Pet Milk Kitchen where Mary Lee Taylor will plan a Sunday dinner for you and tell you how to make that all-American favorite fried chicken a slightly different and extra good way. How about it, Mary Lee? I'm all set, Del. Del? Hmm? You don't suppose this chicken just had one leg, do you? There's only one drumstick here, and I could have sworn that I could... Okay, okay, so you have to tell everybody I took a drumstick when you weren't looking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's all right with me, Del, as long as you tell everybody how you like it. (laughs) I couldn't. I just couldn't. Uh, I, uh... 
I don't know any words that sound as good as that chicken tasted. <laughs> All the time I was eating it, I was wondering if uh, pet milk could make fried chicken taste better than the best fried chicken I've ever had. And it can. So, wait till you hear what I've got to say about pet milk today. Bill, no matter how much you love to sell pet milk, Right now is where we stop selling and start telling. Telling about a good old-fashioned Sunday dinner starring pet fried chicken? That's right. And along with the pet fried chicken, we'll have fresh or canned peas. And mashed potatoes. Got to have mashed potatoes with that smooth, rich, delicious pet milk gravy. And mashed potatoes you'll get. And for a salad, leaf lettuce with a simple dressing of vinegar, salt, and sugar. Hot rolls and butter. And for dessert, well, um... How'd you like fresh strawberries? Well, uh, confidentially, Mary Lee, uh, next to pet milk, I love fried chicken best. And uh, next to fried chicken, I love fresh strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> and along with the strawberries, a cup of good coffee. Yes, ma'am. And that meal can be fixed for as little as 70 cents a person. Wonderful. And now, Mary Lee, pet milk tailor, I've got my <laughs> pencil and paper already, so how about the recipe for pet fried chicken? Here we go, Dale. First, put into a bowl... Two and one-half pounds of cut-up chicken. Put into bowl two and one-half pounds cut-up chicken. Mm-hmm. Then what? Pour over chicken one cup pet milk. Next, let stand in icebox two hours. Okay. Then drain and save milk for gravy. Gravy. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Sprinkle over chicken one and one-half teaspoons salt. Sprinkle one and one-half teaspoons salt. That all? And one-eighth teaspoon pepper. One-eighth teaspoon pepper. Mm -hmm. All right. Brown very slowly over low heat in one-fourth inch hot fat until tender. And it is tender, believe me. Remove chicken and keep hot. Okay, next. Drain off all but two tablespoons fat. Blend into fat three tablespoons flour. And what else? Three-fourths teaspoons salt. Yeah. And a few grains pepper. Pepper. Okay, got that. Stir in three-fourths cup water. Boil and stir two minutes. Mm -hmm. Add remaining milk, and when hot, serve with the chicken. And that makes four servings. Add remaining milk, pet milk, that is, and when hot, serve with the chicken and take a bow. In fact, uh, you might take a bow yourself, Mary Lee. Mm, I'd rather give the credit to pet milk, Dell, because if I didn't use milk like pet milk, that pet fried chicken couldn't possibly be as good as it is. You can say that again. Just imagine an all-purpose, all-family milk so thick and rich, lots of folks say it belongs in the cream pitcher. And they use it that way, too. An all-purpose milk so thick and rich you can actually add an equal amount of water and still have milk that's richer than the milk generally sold in bottles. That's the kind of milk you get when you get pet milk. You're doing fine, Dale. But I do want to tell our listeners that in making pet fried chicken this morning, we combined the gravy with garden-fresh peas. And the combination is delicious. If you want to try it, just add a number two can of drained peas or 
two and one-fourth cups of fresh-cooked peas. At the same time, you add the milk in making the gravy. Well, Mary Lee, just one question. Uh, do you really have to soak the chicken in pet milk in the ice box for two hours? Yes. It doesn't take any extra work, and it does make a big difference in the tenderness, juiciness, and flavor of the chicken. And here are a few more helpful tips. If you start with a whole chicken, wash it before you cut it up, not afterwards, because flavor is lost through the cut surfaces. And to cook pet fried chicken, choose a large skillet, say a 10-inch one, or a regular chicken fryer, or a Dutch oven. If you cook the gizzard and heart, be sure to simmer them first in just enough water to cover until they're almost tender before soaking them in the milk. The liver can be put into the milk right along with the rest of the chicken, but since it takes only a few minutes cooking, put it in the skillet last. Okay. Any more tips? Just one. To be double sure your chicken is tender, after 25 minutes cooking, pierce the drumstick with a fork. If that part of the chicken is tender, you can be sure it's all tender. But don't expect it to be tender in less than 25 minutes. And remember that pet fried chicken is just one way to use pet milk. And be with us next Saturday morning for another Pet Milk Double Rich program featuring the story of the week about Jim and Sally Carter and the recipe of the week. And now, today's recipe for happiness. The hope of the whole world can be no bigger than the hope in your own heart. And now until next Saturday, this is Mary Lee Taylor saying happy homemaking. Goodbye, Mary Lee Taylor, and good luck to all of you from Pet Milk. Today's story was written by Jane Spencer, directed by Al Chan. Del King speaking. The Mary Lee Taylor Program, from the end of spring in 1949, and from the big broadcast. And again, if that fried chicken recipe beguiles you, check it out on our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. That's the name of our show. I'm your host, Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. You might think of tonight's Gunsmoke episode as, to abuse a phrase, the exception that proves the rule. It's got absolutely nothing to do with Women's History Month. The episode's called Duly Surrenders, and it's the September 13th, 1954 episode of the CBS series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad. 
transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Chester? Oh, Doc. What are you doing up so early, Doc? Early? (laughs) It's almost noon. Well, that's early for some people. Oh, early for some people. (laughs) I didn't come here to get into any personal arguments, Matt. I want to borrow one of your shotguns. Borrow a shotgun? Who do you think you are, Doc Holliday? All righty, I've asked you nice. Now I'll just help myself. Good. It's loaded. But I'll need more than these two shells. Where do you keep them? Well, fetch him a handful, Chester. Yes, sir. Yes, at least a handful. There's <laughs> no telling what I might run into. Here you are. What's I the matter? Don't you trust your aim, Doc? Or are you planning to blow up a whole lot of people? None of your business, but I have to go up the river to Pierceville for a week or so, and I thought I might bag a few quail and prairie chicken along the way. Well, that won't make very good eating, Doc. Oh, is that so? And why not? Well, all you're going to get is feathers. Oh, I'm going to get what? We don't keep those guns here to shoot birds with, you know. Yeah. Oh, for Lord. Here, Chester, give me some decent ammunition. Well, oh, you didn't say what you wanted for, Doc. Do I have to explain I'm not a murderer? <laughs> this the U.S. Marshal's office? Yeah, that's right. Come on in, mister. <clears throat> I got something to tell you, Marshal. Okay. First, you better say my name. Damn it, Dooley. All right, Dooley. Now, for what I got to tell you. I've been skinning hides, Marshal, working for a buffalo hunter named Culpit. You know him? No, I don't. Well, there was this Culpit and his partner Faber and me and the cook. Nobody knows the cook's name. We just call him the cook. And we was camped up the Arkansas River at...
Turkey Ben. You know where that is? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't avoid him. And he begged me to come with him to his flat. So evident and so terrible were his distress and his urgency that I went. My dear, I must talk to you. I really can't understand why you insisted on my coming here. I wanted you to look at my pictures. Your pictures? <laughs> Surely I've seen them often enough. But you are seeing them for the last time. They're sold. What? Yes, sold. Every last one. The Toulouse-Lautrec, the Monet, the Tourenoirs, everything. They will be taken away tomorrow. I'm a ruined man. I have nothing left. I must give up this flat. But I don't understand. You had plenty. Americans. Oh, my dear, you, you are English. Your husband is an American. You know American women. You have always told me they were civilized. They are. I will tell you. I will show you they are not. Wait. One moment. I will tell my men not to disturb us. Guillaume! Guillaume! Je ne vois pas personne, tu comprends? Oh, my dear. It is such a consolation to tell you all this. Ah. Began last Easter. I was very lonely, very unhappy. A charming friend of mine had gone to spend a year in the Argentine. And I must always have a woman friend, someone to give me sympathy, someone to whom I can be tender. And in that state of loneliness, I met a woman named Mrs. Sal, Nancy Sal. It was at a luncheon in the flat below. This Mrs. Sal was not at all beautiful, not elegant. And in addition, she was, oh, quite old, perhaps 45. I should have been warned by her lack of elegance, but I felt pity for her. And I was at the mercy of my loneliness. Why, yes, I've known Nori Thompson for years, ever since I was a girl. We grew up in the same town. Ah, indeed. That is most interesting. And uh, where was that? Mm-hmm. Why, in Seattle. Seattle? Do you know, we French, we find the names of your American town so hard, so uh, unyielding. The name of a town should suggest something soft and beautiful. Like a woman. Oh, I don't think that's ever occurred to me, Mr. Uh, uh, oh, Marquis. Um... Etienne. Etienne de Sarnac. Oh, yes. I'm afraid I have trouble with names here. I never learned any French. Oh, but I could teach you. There is so much I would like to teach you about France, about Paris. Yeah, I suppose so. You've never been here before? No, you see, my late husband, Mr. Sarl, didn't care for travel. Oh, but that was selfish of him to keep you from so many glories. Oh, no, it wasn't that. It was just that he was quite old. He was over 70 when he died. 70? Oh, I see. Uh, What do you see, uh, Marquis? (coughs) Oh, nothing, nothing, my dear Mrs. Sarl. I hope you will give me the privilege uh, after luncheon of driving you back to your hotel. My car's waiting. Why, that's real kind. Uh, Where are you staying? At the Ritz. Ah, the Ritz. Well, they told me that was the only place. I seldom go there. But, as it happens, I stopped there for a cocktail only yesterday afternoon. Oh, it would have given me such pleasure to see you, had I only known you then. Oh, but I never go into the bar. Oh, you don't drink? Yes, but not there. I don't feel quite at home there. I don't dare go in. Everybody's so well-dressed and sure of themselves. At the Ritz? Mrs. Sarr. Oh, I feel that uh, you and I must know each other much better. Uh, do not think me presumptuous, but I must beg of you to lunch with me tomorrow. Mm-hmm. 
mention it, my dear. Afraid to go into the Ritz bar. That horrible, cheap showplace. No refinement, no taste. Well, I was overcome with pity and tenderness. It was pathetic to think of how little of life she could ever have seen. And yet, uh, there was something in her eyes, those extraordinary blue eyes, which told of an immense appetite for life. She would have adored to be somebody, poor little thing. Her heart was crying out for love and adventure. And I was resolved that I would help her, give her some of the things that she had never had. We lunched at Armenonville, and... Um... We don't go in for these outdoor tables and things at home. Oh, that's a shame. I believe every woman has a little of the shepherdess in her. I don't see anybody looking like a shepherdess around here. <laughs> it was a figure of speech and a poor one. Now, uh, that one over there. She certainly is fashionable, don't you think so, Marquis? Mm, yes, if you care for Molineux design. Oh, you seem to know a lot about a lot of things. Well, perhaps... We may say, I have had the opportunity of learning. Yes, I, I was wondering about that. About uh, you, I mean. Oh, there's nothing to wonder about me. I am the Marquis de Sodnac and, and a very simple man. What else? I, I don't understand. Well, I mean, what business are you in? What do you do for a living? Oh, I have my little income. It is sufficient. You mean you don't do anything? Oh, I do not deserve such a description. In Paris, my dear Mrs. Sarr, there is always something fascinating to do. I keep in touch with the worlds of art, music, literature. And I have my own small collection of pictures. I have my dear friends, the de Montaigne, the Draguignon, the Saint-Cyr. All of those? Oh, I think it's wonderful, Marquis, the way you can pronounce those names. Poor creature. I was so anxious to give her happiness. I did everything I could for her. And out of my knowledge of the life that she hungered for, I was able to give and give and give. And I gave without stint. Uh, what did you say was the name of this place? This is Chanel, madame. And now, monsieur le marquis? Mon petit coco, for my sake, dress this lady. Such a very great pleasure. I have brought some of our loveliest models only for Madame to see the sort of thing. Despite the words, naturally, we shall design original gowns. Oh, say, now, that one's pretty. That red one. Not red, Madame. <clears throat> there are, I believe, certain shades more becoming to the particular delicacy of your own coloring, my dear Mrs. Sarr. <laughs> Now, really, Marquis, it was sure kind of you to have this lunch party for me. You're enjoying it? You sure do things right. Oh, you're too kind, my dear. But I believe I may say that there is no one in Paris who is not happy to receive my invitations. Well, I should think so. Now, uh, that man at the other end of the table there... Oh, the Comte de Montaigne? Oh, he's charmed by you. The Comte de Montaigne. 
Why, do you know, Marquis, everybody here but me has a title. <laughs> oh, the court is charmed by you. And I, you must permit me to say, my dear Mrs. Sal, I find you adorable. It was the day after, I remember, that I made my two mistakes, that I put myself doubly in her power. I was waiting for her, as usual, in her hotel sitting room before luncheon, when I noticed on top of the writing desk a toy railroad engine, very nicely finished, made of steel and about 12 inches long. And it occurred to me that perhaps my poor little Nancy was a mother. Of course, she would never speak of her children. Oh, that might appear her, make her appear less romantic. As I was smiling over this, she came in. Oh, I assure you, my heart turned over. She was looking so pathetically old. I didn't mean to keep you waiting. I had a busy morning. Oh, do not think of it, my dear. I've been enjoying my aperitif. I see you've been buying toys. Toys? Yes. That engine. That? That's not a toy. That's a scale model. Oh. That cost a thousand dollars. That did. Oh, really? Pretty dear for a toy. And what it stands for is going to cost me dearer still. Oh, I, I trust I have not made a stupid error. This is a new type of locomotive we're putting on the line, and I'm not sure about it. I'm just not sure. Well, now I truly do not understand. What have you to do with railways? What have I to do with railways? Yes, but this interests me extraordinarily. I really would like to know. You mean you don't know? No, I don't. Don't you know Mr. Sarl was president of the Southwest and West South? <laughs> no, I did not know, and it makes me so happy. But now there's another link between us as well as my love for you. My dear, I too am concerned with an American railway. Well, you are, but... Uh... How? How? I hold a half million dollars worth of stock in an American railway, the St. Louis and Los Angeles. I put every penny of my inheritance into it in 1911. 1911? That was the Watkins holding. My, you've made some money since then. My dear, you have such a strange look about you. What is it? Why, I... I just... I just remembered these roses. You sent them. And I haven't thanked you for them yet. Oh, how tender you are looking at the flowers. But come, let us go to lunch at once. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor this afternoon. I'm going to ask you to come to my flat. And look at my pictures. <laughs> Thus, in a moment, by telling her of my railway stock, I put into her hands the weapon by which she has destroyed my life. And as if that were not enough, I then allowed her to mistake my pity for the same love that she felt for me. A nice place you got here, Marquis. Oh, please, please, my dear. We're such close friends. Will you not call me Etienne? All right, Etienne. Yes, I'm comfortable here in my own way. Uh, for a long time, I had a rather charming house in the Faubourg Saint-Germain. And that was during my marriage. 
Oh, you were married? Mm, long ago, yes. Tragically, tragically, it had to end. But she, too, uh, oh, she was a magnificent woman. I've been so fortunate during my life. I've known so many magnificent women. The most charming, the most beautiful. And now you, my Nancy. You were saying how you happened to leave the house. Oh, yes, yes, of course. <clears throat> it was because I was planning to write a book on my journey through Syria. And I told France then lived in this street, and he had promised to help me with it. He did not keep his promise, but uh, he did help me to obtain this renoir. Hmm. Who are those women supposed to be? Mm, uh, peasant women. And notice how wonderfully his genius has caught the, the curves of their bodies. How soft. How inviting. Hmm. Yes, you see, it was a warm day like this one. And they're all resting. Nancy, my dear, will you not come and sit on the sofa beside me? Do you know? That affair at moments, oh, it was quite charming. I had the joy of teaching her so much. All she could possibly learn about civilized relations between men and women. I even got her to understand a little about subtlety, to grasp the nature of a, a finesse. Oh, it was delightful to see her blossoming like a flower. Not a very beautiful flower, it is true, but such as it was in a full state of blossom. Oh, but she stayed in Paris too long. Months went by. I ask you, can a man go on being kind forever? It will be cunning and annoyance. And just then... I fell in love with the most delicious woman in the world, a beautiful young girl. And then, oh, how the train of my generosity dragged on me. Even an engagement to dine with Nancy was too heavy and I did link to the chain. My dear, I hardly know how to tell you. Yes, Etienne? An uncle of mine has fallen very ill, an elderly man. I have been urgently asked to come to his villa. You understand? I will be unable to dine with you tonight. Oh. Oh, you do understand, of course. Yes, of course. Well, I knew you would. But, my dear... But you're not listening to me. Oh, my poor Nancy, are you ill? I, I don't know. Oh, but you look so strangely. You will see me Tomorrow? Tomorrow? Now, tomorrow I'm going to Carlsbad to do a cure. But there is no one at Carlsbad now. There will be after tomorrow. I'll be there. I see. Of course. I understand. Do you know, I nearly burst out crying. To go to Carlsbad in the middle of June. Oh, the poor thing. She was trying to apply the finesse that I had taught her. When a man seems to tire of you, don't pursue him. Let him pursue you. As clumsy as that. But only consider my distress. When after she had been gone a few days, I got a letter asking me quite crudely and stupidly if I loved her. It was incredible. It was a business letter. It might have been discussing the matter of a woman's summer rental of a villa one was preparing to let. Then, uh, 
following the first letter, a second, even worse. Well, naturally, I didn't answer them. I simply wanted the whole thing to come to an end as quickly as possible. A fortnight after she left for Carlsbad, the most unimaginable horror occurred in this very room. With the divine young girl of whom I spoke, I had prospered as well as I could have hoped. So well that she had promised to come to my flat to see my pictures that very evening. I was awaiting her, eagerly. I had prepared everything so carefully. Ne vous inquiétez pas, monsieur le marquis, tout est prêt. Ah, les fleurs, Guillaume, les fleurs, comme Yvette les adore, et surtout dans la chambre à coucher. Entendu, monsieur le marquis, entendu. Bien. Et je ne suis pas à la maison que pour mademoiselle Yvette, pour personne d'autre. Personne, tu comprends Parfaitement, monsieur le marquis. Ouh, la voilà, la voilà, ne la fais pas attendre. Oui, 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 monsieur le marquis, je vais, je m'en vais. Where's the Marquis? I want to see him right away. This is impossible. I'm madame. Oh, Marquis talk to English, will you? I've got to see him right away. What, what do you think you are doing here? You. You. What, what, what are you saying? What do you want? Tell me. Tell me. What do you want? Do you care for me or don't you? What? What is it that you are saying? Listen, you, you've got to tell me. Do you care for me or don't you? Care for you? Can't you understand? I'm asking you, do you love me? Guillaume, Guillaume. Answer. Will you answer? No, 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 no. Of course I do not love you. Go away. You. You mean it? How dare you come here in such a way? Have you gone mad? Now, will you go away? You don't love me, but, but don't you care for me? Haven't you any feeling for me at all? No, none. Nothing. You are nothing to me. You are less than nothing. Go away! Her eyes left my face and seemed to be looking at something over my shoulder. An expression I could not understand passed over her face. And she was gone. Oh, you can believe. I was shattered. When Yvette arrived, my evening with her was ruined. And then, then, and then, then within ten days, I was a pauper. The stock in the St. Louis and Los Angeles Railroad, all of it, reduced to waste paper. But how do you know that she was... She did it? I learned it all from one of my uncles who is a banker in London. It was a most complicated operation on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, I'm ruined. Oh, my dear, you're cold. No, no. Oh, yes, but you are. Oh, you're shaking all over. Shall I call Guillaume to light the fire? No, Etienne. I'm not cold. It's only that I'm sorry. He had bent over me and put his fingers on my hand. Looking at him, I saw how he was changed. Now he seemed insincere because his concern for me was nothing compared with his profound and bitter dissatisfaction with the whole of life. But why was it that I was filled with a miserable chill there in Etienne de Sevenac's room? It could be nothing in the place, nor the moment, since I'd felt this way before in quite other places and other moments. The feeling seemed always to be provoked 
by any consideration of the soul of Etienne de Sevenac, which was really too much like a desert. From Hollywood, the NBC Theater is bringing you a dramatization of There Is No Conversation by Rebecca West. If you are interested in supplementing your enjoyment of these NBC Theater productions with home study under college supervision, be sure to listen to the announcement at the close of this program. And now, our intermission commentator, Catherine Ann Porter. Rebecca West begins the story from which this play is made with statement. There is no such thing as conversation. It is an illusion. There are intersecting monologues, that is all. We speak, we spread around us with sounds, with words, an emanation from ourselves. It is as if she began a thesis with an exact statement of what she means to do. To show that most of the trouble between human beings comes of our unwillingness to listen to each other that we fail to understand each other because we're so bound up in our own imaginative view of other personalities, our own wish that they may be what we wish them to be, we miss entirely the real being and invent for ourselves their characters, personalities. Above all, we interpret their acts, looks, gestures, words in ways that will confirm to us our visions of what we wish them to be. It is a fatal sort of thing, as this story shows clearly. Talk. Surely human beings are meant to communicate with each other, and there are times when words might really help. And there are human beings who do say the right thing at the right moment because they wish each other to know the truth as well as they are able to speak it. Miss West does not deal with such people. In this story, she shows a man who never had any notion of reality, a woman who had the most mistaken sense of reality, and a second woman, the divorced wife, who faced the humiliating fact that she had loved a cad. I had wanted her to tell me, she says, that she too had found it possible to love a cad. But the American woman financier had taken it for granted from the beginning that he was a cad, had not been surprised by it, had only been surprised at the end, and that perhaps he was better than she had thought. In any case, he was as good as she was, which is not saying too much. Miss West is a magnificent reporter. That is to say, she tells a straight story without taking liberties with the mind of the reader. She never says, draw this conclusion or that, but says instead that here are some human beings I have known in my time, strange creatures, no doubt, but still human, still in spite of their distortions, their stupidities, their blindness, deafness, dumbness, have a claim on your sympathies. They did at least behave to each other as well as they knew how or if they committed crimes against each other, as the American woman did against her enemy Mary Martin and her enemy Etienne de Sevenac, it was because she was unconscious, because no one had ever warned her, ever told her better. Even the divorced wife, slave of love and her own bad taste, disliked her, at least for the right reason. Her sin was indifference, not knowing, not caring, and that is always the real sin. Thank you, Miss Porter. I 
people who have strong feelings. That is why when I got home to New York, I was haunted by the strongest desire to meet Nancy Saab. I wanted to know a woman who could feel such intense emotion, such love, and such hatred. I had no luck in my search for her until just before Christmas. Then, at a dinner party, I was seated next to a tiresome board of an old man. I hardly listened to him until he began to talk about railroads, which were apparently his line in life. Yes, indeed, I knew them all. Hill, Harriman, Patton, big railroaders, remarkable men. And, of course, old Walter Sarl was no slouch either. Did you say Walter Sarl? Sure, president of the Southwest and West-South. Did you know his wife? Did you know Nancy Sarl? Sure I did, and Nancy Gott, and Nancy McFarlane, and Nancy King. Who are they? <laughs> Same as Nancy Sarl, and not changed very much in the process either. You mean she's been married three times? That's what she has, and pushed her first two husbands along something wonderful, too. Before she was done with them, they were both pulling down maybe uh, 50000 a year. Ah, but that was no good to Nancy. Real money's what she's interested in. I see. Well, she got it all right. Old Sarl died on her three years after they were married. Now she's running the whole show herself. Tell me, what's she like, this Mrs. Sarl? Is she pretty? Well, now, <laughs> to tell the truth, I don't know why any man ever look at Nancy for pleasure. She's just kind of little and stocky and nothing much. Oh, but mighty pretty eyes, though. Mighty pretty blue eyes. Is she... Would you say she was a good sort of person? Never knew her better. She's a grand woman. And when it comes to running the railroad, well, I'd hate to be in a fight with her. That's all. How about that business last summer with the St. Louis and Los Angeles failed? Did she have anything to do with that? <laughs> anything to do with it? <laughs> Why, she swung that axe with her own hands. Yes, ma'am, that was Nancy, all right. Well, we were all laughing about it just the other night. Oh, you see her often? Oh, sure, old George Parsons and Senator Saul and I were out to her place around a week ago. Had a grand time. Out to her place? Oh, sure, yeah. She, she lives here in New York all week. Goes down to Wall Street every day just like a man. But weekends, she goes to a house she's got way out on the end of Long Island. Place called Cedar Corner. Cedar Corner, on the farthest end of Long Island. I had a distant acquaintance who had a house there. And I improved the acquaintance until it brought me an invitation for a weekend. During which... I met Nancy Saab, a woman as placid, as ordinary, and as likable as anyone in the world. She seemed to like me, too. And helped by my prodding, our friendship grew, until my husband and I again found ourselves guests at Cedar Corner, this time in Nancy's house. That evening, there was a big party, and during it, Nancy asked me to come upstairs with her. Her evening shoes were hurting her feet, and she wanted to change. Oh, gosh, my feet. <sighs> oh, you mind just letting me sit a couple of minutes, honey? Of course not. Oh, boy, these feet of mine. All the trouble I had fitting a lot of shoes in Paris, and when I turn around, there isn't a pair of them I can use. <sighs> well, I guess I better get into something and get back downstairs, though. No, no, let's... Let's sit for a minute. I like this room. Well, I'm real glad to hear that. It... It reminds me of a room in my old home in England, 
Of course, that hasn't been my home for many years. Before I came to America, I lived in France for quite a long time. Oh, that's so? Well, it's a nice place for a visit. Don't know as I'd want to live there. Perhaps, perhaps you might have met some of my old friends while you were there. Felice de Leon? No, I don't think I ran into her. Perhaps the Marquis de Sevenac? Did, did you say de Sevenac? Yes, Etienne de Sevenac. Fellow around 50 with a, a white face and black hair? Yes, that would be Etienne. Do you know him? Well, I'll say I do. What do you know about that? Fancy you knowing that fella. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something. He nearly had me making a fool of myself. But I got out of it in time. Whew, it was a close shave, though. What, what do you mean? What happened? Well, I don't mind telling you. It's all over now, but on account of it, I pretty nearly lost the dearest thing in the world to me. Kind of a long story, honey. Hope it won't bore you, will it? No, no, not at all. Go on, please. Well, last summer, I made up my mind I needed a vacation. And maybe I ought to take a look at Europe. See, one of the boys I got around the office worked out a real swell trip for me. But I just got to Paris and stayed there. I ran around looking at the town, and I kept falling over all kinds of folks I knew, from Chicago and Denver and Seattle and all over. One woman I'd known ever since I was a kid... See, my mother used to go around and help out at her place when they had company. Well, I went up to lunch at her place one day, and there was this middle-aged chap. He kept trying to butt into the conversation between Nori Thompson's son and daughter, just like he was one of them. Finally, they razzed him so much he had to shut up. And that was when he latched onto me. I remember he kept throwing his title at me. The Marquis, uh, the Marquis of Mac. Oh, yeah, sure. I never had the time to learn any of this French lingo. Well, but you should let me teach you. It would be so great a pleasure to teach such a charming lady. Well, that's real kind of you, Marquis, but I guess we both got other things to do. Ah, but in Paris there's time, time. One can learn to live here, Mrs. Salle. That's funny. I always thought I was living where I was. Oh, you have never been in Paris? That's right. Walter, that was my husband. He didn't hold with traveling much. Oh, but how selfish to keep you away from us. Ah, when a man's over 70, you can't blame him if he don't feel like gallivanting. 70? <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? You'll get to be 70 yourself someday. <coughs> Without doubt, Mrs. Sard, but I am glad to say not for a great many years. Uh, now, Mrs. Sard, uh, I must tell you that I cannot live unless you allow me a great privilege. Well, I don't see why I should kill you off. What can I do for you? My dear Mrs. Sarr, I must beg of you. Do me the honor to have luncheon with me tomorrow. Just the two of us, alone. I had that fellow figured out all wrong at the beginning. He looked like he was trying so hard to put himself over. Well, I figured my old friend Norrie Thompson must have spilled to him who I was and how much money I had, and now he was acting like he'd fallen for me. I went to lunch with him, though, and I will say for that fella, he certainly did know how to give a person a good time. Say, uh, Marquis, look at that one over there. Uh, what do you call that? 
I know her. She's dressed by Molyneux. But she has no knowledge of how to wear her clothes. Oh, she might as well have had some little seamstress at home. Now, that's a funny thing for a man to say. Ah, but I am interested in many things. That's so? Well, just what are you interested in? At the moment, only in you. I take it you're not a family man. Oh, but I have a large family. There is my cousin Amélie, the Duchesse de Draguignon, my uncle Léon, the Duc de Federoville, my cousin Philippe, the Marquis de Saint-Cyr, No, and... that's enough, that's enough. I got to hand it to you, Marquis. You really know how to throw those titles around. By this time, I really thought I had his number. He was just one of those frauds who hang around and try to land dumb Americans by shooting phony titles at them. Half the time, they're nothing but shoeshine boys. So every time he handed me a title, I looked him straight in the eye just to let him know I was on to him and no funny business. But that didn't clear him out. He sure acted like he enjoyed hanging around. So I kept kidding him along till I could find out what his game really was. Now, look here, Marquis. It don't make a bit of difference what I wear. You didn't have to drag me into this, uh, this, uh, what's the name of it? This is Chanel, madame. And now, Monsieur le Marquis? My dearest Mrs. Salle, anyone with such charm, such beauty, should take fullest advantage of them. Monticoco, for my sake, dress this lady. <clears throat> such a very great pleasure. Now, listen, I don't want to feel like Grant's tomb. Who are you dolling me up for, Marquis? Well, all right. Let me see that red satin thing. That's not too bad. All right, George, what'd you find out? I checked up on every name and title you gave me, Mrs. Sarl. They're all real. All real? Mm -hmm. Listen, if you haven't got this straight, George, I'm in the market for a new secretary. Mm -mm, they're gilt-edged, every one of them. Hmm. Maybe you're right at that. That duchess dame, she sure is too ugly to be a crook. How about Etienne? He's right in there with the rest of them. First families of France, all that kind of stuff. Well, I'll be hornswoggled. Now I can't figure this out at all. I kept right on trying to figure it. And then I thought I had it. I decided Etienne was after a rich American wife after all. He was maybe a black sheep who'd lost all his dough, and now he was trying to make a comeback. Sure. That was it. And then something happened that just knocked me silly. One day when he called for me to go to lunch, I'd had a pretty bad morning. There was the deuce and all of work to do, and on top of that, my so-called brainy fellow back in New York had sent me a model of a locomotive that... Well, it made me mad just to look at it. I was so sure it was wrong and not worth wasting time and money on. When I got into the sitting room, there was Etienne looking at this thing. And the first crack out of his mouth nearly blew me up. I see you've been buying toys. Toys? Yes, uh, that engine. Ha! Huh. That's no toy. That's a model. That cost a thousand dollars, that did. Pretty dear for a toy. And what it stands for is going to cost me dearer still. Oh? I trust I have not made a stupid error. 
This is a new type locomotive we're putting on the line, and I'm not sure about it. I'm just not sure. But I truly do not understand. What have you to do with railways? What? What did you say? But this interests me extraordinarily. I truly would like to know. You... You don't know? No. You mean... You don't know who I am? You haven't any idea? No, I do not. You don't know that I'm Walter Sarrell's widow, the president of the Southwest and West South? You don't know I run the concern now? No, but I am so happy to hear it. My dear, I too am concerned with an American railway. You? Yes. I hold a half million dollars worth of stock in an American railway, the St. Louis and Los Angeles United. I realized my entire inheritance in 1911... There was a large block of stock free at that time, and on very good advice, I put into it everything I had. 1911. Old man Watkins had just died. That was his holding. Well, you... you have made some money since then. My dear, you have such a strange look about you. But what is it? Why, I... uh... I just, um, uh, just, I just remembered these roses. You sent them, and I haven't remembered to thank you for them yet. I leaned over those fool flowers, thinking maybe for Pete's sake they'd give me some kind of an answer. Here was this fella didn't even know how rich I was. So there went my idea of the poor aristocrat running after the millionaires. And to make it still funnier, it turned out he was rich himself. Plenty rich. So what was he after? What in tarnation was he after? And then all of a sudden it came over me. He was after me. Why, I thought to myself, the poor old fool, that's kind of sweet of him. I was so flummoxed, I guess I must have given him a look like I'd fallen for him, too. So he said for me to come up and see his pictures. Well, we started going around like a couple of sweethearts. And you know, it was kind of nice. I felt real kind toward him, as if I mustn't let him come to any harm. I had to stay in Paris much longer than I wanted to. The French government wanted to give us some railway reorganizing work, and I had to stick around and see what was in it for us. And with Etienne around, it wasn't so bad. And then I got some news that just made me feel like a dog. Mrs. Searle. Mrs. Searle. Oh, George, can't you see I'm on the telephone? And don't take any palaver. Just tell him to see Pardon our lawyers. Me, Mrs. Searle. All right, George. Now, what do you want? This cable just came in, and I knew you'd want to read it right away. Oh, if one of those dumb vice presidents of mine has got himself... Read it. What is it? Read it. Mary Lonergan, seriously ill, all preparations complete. Can we expect you in New York at once? George, did you read this? (laughs) Why do you think I came tearing in here? After all these years, that prissy mouth, hawk-eyed, antiquated old toothache... She won't die. I know she won't die. She's nearly 80. You're telling me. But that doesn't mean a thing, George, not a thing. I've waited too many years for her to die. 
All these years with my fingers itching. And that clause in Walter's will saying I couldn't do a thing till Mary was gone. She won't die. She wouldn't do anybody that much of a favor. Now, all this about Mary Lonergan all takes some explaining. Walter, my husband, and Tom Lonergan used to be partners. Then Walter found out Tom was a crook. They split up. We got our line, and Tom took the St. Louis and Los Angeles. Oh, Walter could have closed him out 25 years ago. But he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it out of respect for Tom Lonergan's wife, Mary. That held after Tom was dead, and it held after Walter was dead. In his will. But I got ready. I had my folks in Washington all ready to hand the goods to the Railway Commission. I put senators in every state legislature their lines went through. I bought four newspapers in the West and Middle West and told them to stand by to tear the sky down. I got enough of their shares to start a panic on the market any time. I had all that. And Mary Lonergan wouldn't die. She wouldn't die. And now, here she was dying. And I wasn't going to be able to move because the minute I did... I was going to ruin Etienne. All right, all right. No, don't tell those editors a blame thing. Just tell them that story I told them they were going to have this bill someday may come through any minute now. Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, if that's at the end of seven act, George, tell Get him that. downstairs. Three more cables, Mr. I can't stand it, George. Have the phone shut off. Tell him not to deliver any more cables today. No, don't. Oh, tell him what you want. Mr. Sal, I can't understand you. Well, I don't want to do anything too fast, see? Not too fast. She may get better. Every cable looks worse. All these years. I hated that woman so much, I guess I kept her alive hating her. I tell you, George, she won't die. Um, would you just check this list of our Washington people? I want to send off something. Don't send off anything. Not a thing. It's just possible, George, that I may go home and lay a wreath on Mary Lonergan's moth-eaten old head and forget the entire thing. It was killing. I tried to figure out how I could do what I wanted and not leave Etienne broke. And there was no way. There was just no way. My idea had been to shoot up the town, buy the St. Louis and Los Angeles stock at rock bottom after the panic, and leave the Lonergan crowd flat. And all this had to be a secret. I couldn't tip Etienne to unload his stock or they'd have got wise. Anyway, he'd have talked. I knew that. And I wanted that line to crash like a Polak steer. Etienne had to go down with the rest of them or I couldn't have my fun. And so, I couldn't have my fun. If he felt the way he said he did about me, I, I couldn't sell him up the river. Well, I was so scared to see him, I picked up and went to Carlsbad. That'll show you how bad off I was.
Carl? Hmm? Aren't you going to eat your lunch? I guess not, George. Thanks. Chef tells me the ham is something very special here. Now, don't you think Yeah, it looks fine. Just fine. I got no appetite. If you don't mind my saying so, Mrs. Sal, you haven't been looking well the last few days. Now, maybe a doctor might... I don't need any doctors, and I look just like I feel, and I do mind you saying so. Listen, George. Are you sure no answers come to that last letter? The one I wrote to Etienne de Savinac? Well, I left orders that anything that came in was to be sent right up. And you didn't find out any more about him? You're sure he's not maybe looking for a rich wife? Mm-mm, rich or any other kind. He's a Catholic, and his first wife divorced him. These high society French, you know, they're they're pretty strict about that. Then it must be the McCoy. Hello. Yes. Mrs. Sarles, secretary speaking. George, I won't talk to anybody. It's the cable office in Paris. Hello. Yes, please. Thank you. Well. She's dead. Back up, George. We're taking the next train for Paris. I got all the cables ready in the train. Washington, the legislative committees, the papers, the brokerage house, the home office. Who the... told you to do all that? Oh, now everything's ready to say go. We do say it, don't we? We say nothing. Not until I've paid a call. And don't mention the name Mary Lonergan. And you can call all this a rehearsal. What are you talking about, Mrs. Sow? I'm talking about how maybe we're never going to mention the name Mary Lonergan again. Where's this chauffeur driving to? I told him the Ritz. Well, tell him over. Tell him to drive to where the Marquis de Sevenac lives. But, but aren't you going to stop for a bath and something to eat? I don't want anything to eat, and I've lost all interest in being clean. <laughs> Long Avenue by the Champs Elysees, and my heart was just yammering. I tell you, it would have killed me not to have gone for that bunch of dirty crooks on the St. Louis in Los Angeles. But I couldn't hurt Etienne. When we got to his apartment, I pretty near broke down the door, and as if everything else wasn't enough, I was hot and mad and tired and dirty, and then that butler of his wouldn't let me in. Madame Sal. Where's the marquee? I want to see him right away. Oh, je suis désolé, madame, mais Talk monsieur English. le marquis... Talk English. Talk English, will you? I've got to see him right away. Madame, je vous assure que monsieur oh, le marquis... Oh, get out of my way. Uh, madame! Madame! I slammed into that flat, and in the sitting room, I found Etienne. And then it was like something happened to me. Everything came on me at once that I was maybe going to lose the most important thing in the world to me. That maybe through all eternity, Mary Lonergan was going to have the last laugh. And it seemed like I couldn't get my voice out. And there was something funny about Etienne, too. He couldn't seem to understand anything I said. What? What do you think you are doing here? You, you... What are you saying? What do you want? Tell me. Tell me. What do you want? Do you... Do you care for me or don't you? What? What is it you're saying? Listen, you've got to tell me. Do you care for me or don't you? 
care for you. Can't you understand? I'm asking you, do you love me? Guillaume, Guillaume. Oh, answer. Will you answer? No, 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 no. Of course I do not love you. Go away. You... You mean it? How dare you come here in such a way? Have you gone mad? Will you go away? You don't love me, but but don't you care for me at all? Haven't you any feeling for me at all? No, none, nothing. You are nothing to me. You are less than nothing. Go away! And I knew it was all right. I knew whatever it had been, well, it was just some kind of foolishness. And that now there wasn't a thing between me and the St. Louis and Los Angeles. And I could have gone down on my knees and prayed and shouted and sung. I was so happy. I just stood there for a second, just looking into the golden future. Then I lit out of there and down to the car and back to the hotel and got the whole thing moving by midnight. And how it moved. Why, there never was any operation of the same size that ran that sweetly. Ten days, and we had the whole bunch of crooks right where we wanted them. And to think I was that close to losing it all. Losing everything to Mary Lonergan's ghost just from being taken in by your friend Etienne de Sevenac. <laughs> eh, well, well, I guess we're all fools once in our lives. But you knowing the fella and all, can you believe it? Knowing Etienne? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Here now, honey. What have you been letting me say to you that's made you so blue? Nothing. Now, that's not true. Well, there was something in your face for a second there. I know I've made you blue. No, no, really. You could never do that. I think you're simply splendid. Then I, I, I haven't done anything or, or said anything? No, not a thing. Well, that's swell. Guess if you're through with that glass of tokay, maybe I better be getting downstairs to the party before that crowd starts ripping up the floorboards. You know, <laughs> fellas are sure funny. <laughs> Very funny. I've told you that there is no conversation, that no one listens to what the other one says. But it appears that even the different parts of the same person do not converse, cannot tell the truth to each other. I had told myself that I wanted to hear Nancy Sal's story out of amusement, and because I adore strong feeling. Yet the truth was something else. She was right. I'd heard her story... And I was desolate because of a cry from my heart, which was not reasonable, which had not been governed by the rest of me, which is governed by reason. I had pried into Nancy Sal's story, hoping to learn that a certain part of my own life had been something other than an accident, a bad dream. I had believed that she did what she did out of love. I had wanted to hear her describe and justify that love to disclose some detail corresponding to my own story and prove to me that it was inevitable for a woman to love a cat. I wanted her to lay something before me, which I realized I had never ceased to seek. 
Something which would make it right and reasonable that I should have spent ten years of my life with my first husband, who was Etienne de Sevenac. I wanted her somehow to prove to me that something about this anguished sacrifice of my best years to a cheap and empty man made all of it worthwhile. Some insane part of me feels that there is somewhere, if only I could lay my hands on it, a sanction for my life in that miserable and fruitless time, transcending all the claims of these later years, while I've been building up a tranquil home for my second husband and children. I insanity had been listening for a miracle to prove its same. Nancy Sal and I walked together through the corridor and down the stairs, arm in arm. I had felt myself her friend, but I knew that I could never like her as I'd liked her before. Now that I knew she had ruined Etienne, not out of love, but out of indifference. Yet, Etienne means nothing to me. He means nothing at all to me. have been listening to There Is No Conversation, an NBC theater production of the story by Rebecca West. There Is No Conversation was adapted for the NBC theater by Clarice A. Ross and is from a book of four short novels by Rebecca West entitled the Harsh Voice. Our intermission commentator was Catherine Ann Porter, whose commentary was recorded. In today's cast, Norma Varden was the narrator, Ramsey Hill was Etienne, Georgia Bacchus was Nancy, Nan Boardman was the couturier, Rolf Sedan was the old man, William Lally was George. Your announcer, Don Stanley. The director of the NBC Theater is Andrew C. Love. This program came to you from Hollywood. A story by the great Rebecca West, There Is No Conversation, as adapted by Clarice A. Ross for the NBC University Theater in the late winter of 1950. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. The French composer Maurice Ravel was born on this date in 1875. There's so much beautiful music that came from the pen of Monsieur Ravel, and we have time for one of his most beautiful and most popular pieces. Composed during World War I, it's the prelude from his suite, Le Tombeau de Couperin. Fittingly for Ravel, it's played for us by a French pianist, and 
Fittingly for Women's History Month, it's Natalia Milstein. For co-producer Jill Errold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.